Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider the true story behind the making of a literary masterpiece. That masterpiece is Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and you do not need to have read it to find this backstory riveting. For purposes of this episode, all you need to know is that Crime and Punishment is about a man, Raskolnikov, who plans and executes the murder of an old woman who's a greedy pawnbroker. I spent many blissful hours of my very antisocial teens and 20s <laughs> absorbed in the standard Russian classics, including Crime and Punishment, but I had no idea that Dostoevsky lived an astonishing life and that jaw-dropping experiences helped to shape Crime and Punishment. When we saw a few glowing reviews of a new book that tells the story behind that story, we thought that sounds perfect for book dreams. So we reached out to Kevin Birmingham, who's the author of that book, The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. And we are so glad that he agreed to come speak with us. I want to note quickly that this is a time when, for appalling and catastrophic reasons, considering Russian culture and history is particularly relevant to world events, we recorded our conversation with Kevin before Russia invaded Ukraine, so we didn't specifically ask him about potential connections, but they are very interesting to think about. Yes, very. Um, in addition to writing The Sinner and the Saint, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice, Kevin is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Most Dangerous Book, The Battle for James Joyce's Ulysses, which won the Penn New England Award and the Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism. Kevin has also been named a public scholar by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and he received his PhD in English from Harvard. His writing has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times Book Review, Slate, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Kevin says in The Center and the Saint that, quote, two decades of hardship, contemplation, and experimentation brought Dostoevsky to a spectacular period of creativity in which he wrote four of the greatest novels in Russian literature, in all of literature. We started by asking Kevin about some of the hardship. So when Dostoevsky was... 28, he was arrested in the pre-dawn hours by the czar's uh, political police and uh, imprisoned in a prison in the middle of St. Petersburg, where he was held for uh, about nine months in solitary confinement. He and a group of his cohorts, I guess you could say, were arrested basically for being a part of a uh, liberal reading group. They were reading books that were banned by the czar, books that were about socialism or about democracy or about utopian societies, books that were reformist, books that were politically dangerous at the time. And the year was 1849, so it was coming just on the heels of the 1848 revolutions that were sweeping Europe. So the czar, Tsar Nicholas, was particularly anxious about any potential rumblings of a revolution in Russia. And the police sent a spy, an undercover spy, to 
record everything that was happening uh, in the group, the things that people were saying. Dostoevsky himself was not very much of a radical, but he was very opposed to serfdom and the institution of serfdom. And he was willing to potentially start violence in order to end that institution. After the czar's investigation, the men were brought out into a square in the middle of St. Petersburg in December. There was snow on the ground. Three men were tied to stakes. There were hoods pulled over their heads. Uh, a firing squad came out to aim their rifles. Dostoevsky was next in line to be executed. At the very last moment, the czar's envoy galloped into the square and announced that by the czar's great mercy, instead of executing all of the men, they were going to be exiled to Siberia. So Dostoevsky spent about nine years in Siberia, and it was in Siberia that his life completely changed and that his writing completely changed. One of the things that happened is that he was very eager to hear the stories of the criminals surrounding him, particularly the murders surrounding him and why these people did what they did. And so he studied effectively uh, of murder as a, you know, as a human act. He studied uh, the peasants as people. He studied people from around the empire who were imprisoned with him. And when he came back to European Russia in 1860, he burst back onto the literary scene and started his career from scratch. And Virtually everything that we read from Dostoevsky was written after his time in Siberia because it became so much more complex and so much deeper. So one of the convicts who was present when Dostoevsky was sentenced to hard labor in Siberia instead of being tied to a post blindfolded and shot by a firing squad. Uh, so one of those fellow convicts hearing the news said, better to be shot than sent <laughs> to right. Siberia. Can you give us a sense of what it was like for Dostoevsky after the sentence, the hardships of even getting to Siberia, and then, you know, the conditions there? So Dostoevsky himself was absolutely thrilled to have had his life spared, unlike many of the other prisoners who were dreading uh, a life ahead of them in Siberia. None of them knew exactly how long they were going to be there. He knew that he would spend uh, four years in a prison labor camp, and then an indefinite amount of time in the Siberian army. Normally, when you're exiled to Siberia, you have to walk to wherever you're you're destined to go. It's astonishing. And I just need no, to interject right. and say that. <laughs> because not only are you walking, you're walking with chains around your ankles. And those chains around your ankles cut into the skin. You can die on the way just from an infection. Many people did die along the way. They were walking during the winter. They were walking during the summer. If you were exiled to the Pacific coast, to somewhere far away from European Russia, it could take you several years to get to your destination. And if you were sentenced to be exiled for five years, your sentence didn't start until you arrived. So it was, you know, an awful, an awful punishment. Yeah, Dostoevsky was a noble. And the people imprisoned with him, you know, who were sentenced with him were also nobles. And so they received the favored treatment of getting to their destination in a sleigh. Once he was there, he arguably had worse conditions than everyone else because most of the people he was imprisoned with were uh, peasants and they hated the nobleman. And the isolation of prison, the bizarre combination of being emotionally isolated while always surrounded by people was 
very, very difficult for Dostoevsky. He had no time to think. He had no time to read. He wasn't allowed to have any books except for the Bible. Uh, the prison conditions were pretty awful. The food was meager and uh, unhealthy. And uh, he was required to work, uh, as everyone else was. That could involve carrying bricks. It could involve taking apart machinery or barges, grinding uh, alabaster. Uh, the job of convicts in Siberia was to build up Siberia. They were responsible for creating the infrastructure that the Russian Empire needed to expand. You know, he said at one point that he felt as if his life was being stolen from him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a young man. He was 28. Every day that passed, it was like his life was seeping away. And while other people were getting letters from their family, he didn't receive a single letter during his time in Siberia. And it was a, a crushing blow to him. Yeah, just brutal. Can you tell us a little more about the conversations he had with murderers in Siberia? Who exactly was he talking to and what did he learn from them? So uh, a lot of the murderers were, some of them were in the army. Some people had killed either former soldiers or in at least one case, a commanding officer. And so they were sentenced to Siberia for that. Other people would kill for commonplace reasons. It could be a small amount of money. Sometimes it was revenge. The more Dostoevsky talked to people, the more he realized that the stated reason for a murder could be almost anything. And what he became more and more curious about was the underlying connection between, let's say, the person who seemed to kill in cold blood, because he did talk to one person who just seemed to enjoy, his name was Orlov, who seemed to enjoy killing just for the sake of killing, and killing for revenge, or killing because someone is mistreating you. And when he stepped back and thought about it, because of course he did have a lot of time to think about it, his conclusion was that, you know, all of these criminals, they basically knew that they would get caught. They didn't think that they would get away with it, but they were willing to do it anyway. And he thought that they were willing to do it anyway because there was a perverse pleasure in sheer destruction, in destroying your own life, in destroying the lives of others, and that there was, for a brief moment, a sense of freedom that came with lashing out, even if you knew that it would end in a disaster. And he compared that freedom to the freedom of leaping off of a cliff. Like that for one very brief moment before gravity takes hold of your body, you'll feel free at last for just one split second. And Dostoevsky saw, I think in relief, what he was looking for in people in general, which is that people in general often have this incredible need for a sense of freedom that can come even at the expense of other people, even if it's a perverse desire, even if it destroys people, people still crave it. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, you've said that when Dostoevsky got back from prison and exile, he looked around at the younger generation, people, and I'm quoting you here, a little bit like himself, and he realized the folly of what he'd done. He effectively nearly threw his life away for an idea. Right. What was the idea? And do you think there was something in particular about Russian society at this time in the 1800s that made people so recklessly devoted to ideas? Yeah. So uh, I guess to answer your second question first, part of the reason why Russian literature was really flourishing in, you know, we're talking from really the 1850s through the 1880s, 
is because political involvement was not acceptable, was not really possible. So all of that energy that could have gone into politics or that could have gone into being a citizen of an interactive society was channeled into literature because it was safer. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to argue politics, which could get you imprisoned, you would embed ideas and ideological positions into narratives. And those narratives were more likely than not to escape the czar's wrath or to escape his attention. You know, that's partly why we get writers like Turgenev and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy is because they were trying to address the problems of their society without dabbling into politics. Hmm. So crime and punishment comes out of the 1860s in Russia and Russia is really at a crossroads in its history. It's starting to liberalize. The serfs, for example, were emancipated or in the process of being emancipated. And the big question facing Russians was whether or not Russia should become more like Europe, should, should be more liberal, should have a constitutional democracy or a constitutional monarchy, or whether it should grow closer to its own Slavic roots. This divide in Russian society was growing wider and wider at the time. And when Dostoevsky was writing Crime and Punishment, he was trying to address some of the radicals who had sprouted up, who, as you said, reminded him of himself. And Mm -hmm. the radicals called themselves the nihilists, and they, you know, were known to be willing to destroy the institutions of Russia. That's including not only the czar, but the bureaucracy, the landowners, the way that land was held, the estates, all the basic institutions that included the, the state religion. They wanted to wipe it all away in order to start from scratch. And when Dostoevsky was talking to his editor, he said, you know, the nihilists want to construct a paradise out of a tabula rasa. And there are two parts to this description of radicals that were important to him. The first is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to create a paradise out of your own society, of trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. But it's a bit naive, right? That you're never, ever going to have a paradise on earth. Mm. But he also saw that the tabula rasa itself, wiping everything away so that you have a clean slate, was part of the pleasure for them, that they enjoyed wiping things away. And so that was the connection that Dostoevsky suddenly made between the political radicals of the 1860s and the murderers that he had been talking to for the last 10 years, that there was a pleasure in destruction. And for those murderers, the pleasure was explicit and it was easy to see because they had done nothing but destroy. It was a little bit more difficult to see it in the Russian radicals because they had ideological programs, because they had manifestos, because they wanted to change society. So what Dostoevsky decided to do was to create a character, his name is Raskolnikov, and to have him want to create a better society and to do that by murdering someone, by murdering one specific person. She's a moneylender. And the reason why Raskolnikov chooses a moneylender is because moneylenders are basically parasites feeding off of the poor, people who fund their own lives by uh, charging exorbitant interest to people who can't afford it at all. Mm -hmm. And so if you kill a moneylender, in theory, you're not doing any harm to society. And Raskolnikov dreams of taking the money that he's going to steal from this moneylender and using it for, for good purposes. And so when we see the folly of this unfolding in crime and punishment, 
by extension, we should be seeing the folly of other people who are willing to commit violence for the sake of a better society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your book, you write that Crime and Punishment is a novel about how ideas inspire and deceive, how they coil themselves around sadness and feed on bitter fruit. What did Dostoevsky think should guide human behavior instead of ideas? Um, empathy. Mm-hmm. Sympathy. So what we see from Raskolnikov early on, there's there's a brief scene where there's a drunk girl on the street, and she's being pursued by a man, and you can tell that things are not going to go well for her. Raskolnikov tries to uh, intervene in order to help her. And the point is that we get little signals like this throughout the novel where Raskolnikov is sympathetic. He really does want to help people. But where he goes wrong is in ignoring that sympathy and in being absorbed in thoughts. He thinks about the theory of killing a pawnbroker. But what's important is when we actually follow Raskolnikov up this darkened stairwell, he has an axe hidden in his coat. He forces the door open. We see this old woman. She has a skinny neck and twiggy legs, and she has greasy hair, and there's you know, a tie in her hair, that's uh, a comb that's, that's pulling it back. Seeing all the details of her as a person is important because it reminds us of what's exactly happening. And so to pull out an ax and to bring it crashing down on her head, which he does, it's, it's a person dying, right? The blood gets under Raskolnikov's fingernails and he needs to scrub it away. And the full reality of the murder victims, because he ends up having to kill the pawnbroker's sister as well, the full reality of it has to, to sink in. And it doesn't sink in when we're just philosophizing. It can only sink in in a novel. You know, so much about this interplay between ideas and seeing people through the lens of ideas and then seeing people actually just as people resonates so much for me, at least, when I think about the United States today and the problems that we have. I I wonder if you have a view of what Dostoevsky would make of us. Uh, A reporter recently pointed out to me, I didn't know this myself, that Dostoevsky's novels have been incredibly popular over the past five years. They've like spiked in sales. I don't know if I have a particular answer as to why they're becoming more popular, but you know, we've just been living through a pandemic and it's been awful for everyone. For a lot of people, it's been surprising to see the reactions of people in this pandemic. But if you were a careful reader of Dostoevsky, you would not be surprised to have seen what we've witnessed, to see people who are completely incapable of doing basic things to help themselves and to help the people around them, to see people who were almost willfully self-destructive in the name of their own personal freedom, to see people doing things that are almost completely irrational, delving into utter fantasies, because those fantasies were pleasing, even if they weren't true. All of these things are incredibly Dostoevskian. And you know, one of the enduring lessons of Dostoevsky's novels is that we don't behave rationally. We are irrational creatures, we are selfish creatures, and we need to fight this, um, this sense of selfishness and irrationality all the time. 
he thought that the self-destructiveness at the heart of individuals is also at work in societies at large. That there's something about societies that we're not moving steadily towards perfection as I think, you know, maybe technocrats would like us to think. We're not rational people, but instead we're always pulling ourselves back. We're always undermining ourselves as a society. And that's never going to end. And, mm-hmm. you know, looking around during COVID, it's hard not to see how we are a society that is just deeply, deeply self-destructive. Yeah. So speaking of the interplay between real life and fiction, the subtitle of your book is Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. Who was the gentleman murderer? And can you tell us about his crimes and about what made him so compelling to Dostoevsky as a subject? Yeah. So uh, my book, The Sinner and the Saint, basically tells two stories. It's the story of Dostoevsky as a young man becoming a novelist, and in particular, how he created and wrote Crime and Punishment. And also the story of a murderer by the name of Pierre-Francois Lassenaire, who was the partial inspiration for Crime and Punishment. Lassenaire was a model for Raskolnikov, and... Dostoevsky came across his story in 1861 when he was starting a magazine with his brother and he was looking for material. He was going through a a volume of famous French trials and crimes. And one of the crimes he read about was about Lassenaire's murder spree. He and an accomplice killed a, a man and his widowed mother. The murder weapons were an axe and a sharpened file, a three sided file. Mm hmm. The murders themselves, like as in Dostoevsky's novel, don't actually generate very much money. There's very little money actually in the apartment. You know, it seems by all accounts uh, a failure. He wanted to take this money and use it for a larger crime, which was effectively a scheme for robbing banks. Mm-hmm. He and an accomplice tried this several times and it never worked out. Lassenaire was eventually captured and was executed by guillotine shortly after his trial. When Dostoevsky read about this, what shocked him, what really caught his eye, wasn't just the brutal nature of the crimes. It was the reaction that people had to them. Dostoevsky would have assumed that everyone would be repulsed by it. But instead what happened was that Lassenaire became a celebrity. People were fascinated by him. There were crowds of people watching him at his trial. People were writing him letters. He had multiple visitors. There were women who were enamored of him, writing him poetry, sending him uh, food. One woman asked him if she would supply him with some lucky lottery numbers because she thought he was uh, lucky. Part of the reason for the captivation was that Lassenaire did not look or seem to be like the typical criminal. He was well-educated. He was elegant. He was eloquent. He wrote poetry. He considered himself a scholar. He wanted to study law. He came from a wealthy bourgeois family that had lost its wealth before he came of age, before he was able to inherit it. So he felt the sense of resentment. That persona was wedded to a larger persona that he was cultivating for himself, where Lassenaire claims to be killing for ideological purposes. 
He wrote his own memoirs in the weeks between his trial and his execution. He was rushing to write as quickly as possible. And in those memoirs, which became bestsellers, he basically said that he was doing this in order to right the wrongs of an unjust society, that he was coming to murder people and to rob from banks because the banks are unjust. He says, I come to preach the religion of fear to the rich because the religion of love has no power over their hearts. Hmm. So there was this Robin Hood persona that he cultivated for himself that people loved. What Dostoevsky saw is that beneath this front of an ideology, was nothing. He wasn't murdering for any ideological purposes at all. He was murdering precisely for no reason whatsoever, just for that same thrill of self-destruction. And so he took that specific dynamic, the allure of an ideological crime that was really a cover for murdering for nothing, and he implanted it into a story that takes place in Russia in the 1860s. Reading your book, I was also struck by the impact that Dostoevsky's addiction to gambling had on his life and his work. Can you tell us the story about how his crushing debts, which were compounded by his gambling, put a ticking time bomb under his writing of both Crime and Punishment and his next novel, The Gambler? Yeah, so Dostoevsky was addicted to roulette. He first started gambling in the early 1860s. And his first trip to the casino, he won uh, quite a large amount of money, tens of thousands of francs. And it was the worst possible thing that he could have done because (laughs) he ended up trying to recapture that moment of victory over and over again in his life. And he would convince himself that he had a system for winning. The system for winning basically just amounted to him being rational and impervious to emotion and slowly and carefully calculating the odds. It's not clear exactly what he was supposed to calculate because roulette is pretty simple. There's no way you're going to win. The, the odds are always slightly tilted in the house's favor because in addition to all the numbers, there's a zero and the zero belongs to the house. Mm-hmm. Dostoevsky kept convincing himself that no, 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 there actually is a way of doing it. Even though what that meant was violating the lesson he already knew. He already knew people were rational. And that's the heartbreaking thing about his gambling addiction, is that even when you know people are rational, it doesn't actually help you become more rational. Mm, yeah. he, he had that lesson. He was the preacher of that lesson. And yet he would gamble away all of his money, and then he would start pawning Uh, his watch. He would pawn his clothes. He would pawn everything that he had, and then he would lose that too. And then he would start writing to friends and family members, especially his second wife, please just send me money so that I can get back home. She would send him money to get back home, and he would take it immediately to the roulette tables and lose, and then ask for more money. And this would happen over and over again. He was in Wiesbaden in the mid-1860s. Crime and Punishment hadn't been written yet. And he was on one of his gambling sprees and had lost everything. He was trying to borrow money from friends and family members and it had all run out. Basically, he had hit bottom and it took him hitting bottom over and over again in his lifetime for him to finally turn back to writing and try to write his way out. One of the incredible aspects of his creativity was that, you know, when he was a young writer, 
He always imagined writing as a calling, something that was a higher purpose. Homer had a calling. Shakespeare had a calling. He wanted to have a calling like that. He wanted there to be an ennobled uh, sense of a career. When he actually started writing, it was very quickly a job. Mm -hmm. Deadlines that he couldn't meet, advances that he would keep taking on things that he had not yet written because he had bills to pay, living beyond his means, and struggling to keep up. And... In his later life, it's sort of brilliant. He, he takes his poverty and sort of flips it on his head and it allows him to turn writing into salvation once again. Mm-hmm. You gamble away your money, you lose everything, and suddenly writing is the thing that's going to save you. So he came up with an idea for a murder story. He wrote the proposal for it when he had no money in Wiesbaden. He didn't even have money to leave the hotel. He had racked up a massive hotel debt, and the proprietor was threatening to call the police. He was potentially going to go to jail for it if he couldn't pay. So he was trapped in this hotel. And what does he do? He starts writing. He writes the basic outline for crime and punishment. He starts writing some scenes. He sends it off. And it was crime and punishment that effectively you know, got him back on his feet. But we see this pattern over and over again of Dostoevsky gambling, hitting rock bottom, turning back to writing again, not as a career, but as something that would save him, something that would save himself and his family. Hmm. You've written, for Dostoevsky, there are no saints among us. Why did you choose to title your book, The Sinner and the Saint? (laughs) Well, I think the title has um, dual meaning. When you you first start reading it, Dostoevsky had a very keen moral impulse. He really wanted to be a good person. And it's very clear also that Lassenaire is just an awful person, someone who has no feeling whatsoever for anyone else. And so the obvious answer is that, you know, the sinner is Lassenaire and the saint is Dostoevsky. But as time goes on, what I hope readers will see is that Dostoevsky is both the sinner and the saint himself. That Hmm. When you just dig a little bit beneath the surface, part of the reason why Dostoevsky had so much keen insight into murderers is because he shared their impulses, that there was a perverse streak of destruction and self-destruction within him as well. He was not a violent person. (laughs) He never succumbed to violence. And I think, you know, most of us are not going to succumb to violence, but it was important for him to, in a way, acknowledge that and to delve into it. There was something about his imagination that really kept wanting to go deeper and deeper into the things that he didn't want to look at, the things that he didn't want to see about himself. And when he saw and talked to the, the criminals surrounding him in Siberia, he saw little elements of himself, and he had to have seen you know, when I was a part of that reading group back in St. Petersburg as a young man, I was being reckless. And there was a part of me that maybe wanted to throw my life away. I now regret it and I want it back. And, you know, whenever I'm gambling, it's like this little demon is making me try to throw everything away all over again. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's remarkable about, about crime and punishment is that we're getting a murder story from the murderer's perspective, especially at the time, right? We're talking about 
1865. We usually see things from an exterior perspective, or we see it from the victim's perspective, or maybe from the um, police officer's perspective. But here we're just peering over the shoulder of Raskolnikov as he's about to pull an axe out of his coat and and kill someone. And that was disturbing to people. Some people, you know, reported being sick reading the first section of Crime and Punishment, because the murder happens at the beginning of Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. Putting ourselves in the perspective of the murderer was important to Dostoevsky, partly because he wanted to make us feel complicit in what's happening, because he thinks that we try to ignore that complicity. Yeah, we want to believe that people who commit crimes like that are monsters, not human beings. Right, right. It's easier for us to do that, yeah. Exactly. Um, it's remarkable that both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy were writing in the same country at the same time. What do we know about what they thought about each other? So Dostoevsky and Tolstoy never met in person, but they were both very well aware of each other. And they were competitive. Dostoevsky was especially competitive, but they admired one another. And you can see how they were subtly influencing each other from afar. When Dostoevsky was nearing the end of his career, he really marveled at, at War and Peace. It was the scale of War and Peace that was really astonishing. You can tell that Dostoevsky thought, you know, I can do something at a larger scale as well. Crime and Punishment, of course, is already a big novel, but the Brothers Karamazov is, you know, it certainly is his biggest novel and potentially, you know, his masterpiece side by side with Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. I think that he wrote The Brothers Karamazov because Tolstoy showed him how much a novel can do. And the same is also true for, for Tolstoy. You know, Tolstoy marveled at the way that Dostoevsky was able to capture consciousness. And he wanted to be able to do the same thing in his own novels. And when he read Notes from a Dead House, which is Dostoevsky's account of his own imprisonment in Siberia, the voices came alive for him so much that he wrote to a friend, remember they had never met, but they had many mutual friends in mind. And, and he wrote to the friend, he said, when you see Dostoevsky, tell him I love him. I sort of think of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy as two very different writers and one way of imagining it is that I think of Dostoevsky as, as writing from the inside out. He tends to write from the perspective of individual people, and he sort of extends outward into the world that way. And War and Peace, in particular, is a novel that's more from the outside in. It has a very wide scope, and we start to get closer and closer to his characters from the outside. While they're very different writers, they are great compliments to one another. Do you think there's anything about the differences in their personal situations that manifests in their approach to writing? Yeah. yeah, definitely. So most of the writers that we still read today from Russia at the time were wealthy. Tolstoy was no exception. And mm -hmm. you know they came from families that, when serfdom was still an institution, had hundreds of serfs. So, you know, Turgenev was very wealthy. We're talking, you know, several hundred serfs on his estate. They didn't need to write to make ends meet. And there was a freedom that came with that. So, you know, may, if you don't have to write to, to meet a deadline in order to pay your bills, your writing is going to be different. Dostoevsky was technically a noble, but he was on the very low rungs of, of the nobility. And his father was a doctor, which at the time was not a very esteemed profession. And it wasn't 
certainly was not a money-making profession. Mm-hmm. It was a weird position for him to be in because he wasn't a peasant. He was a noble, but he felt himself to be a, a low noble. And there was a, an insecurity that came with this and an anxiety that came with this. And he was always trying to prove himself. And he was always, you know, as a practical matter, always rushing. So we can see the the hurried nature of his work in his writing to some degree. Sometimes it's a little bit sloppy, but there's also an intensity to it that really comes from the fact that this is a man who is writing in order to survive, in order to, to make ends meet, in order to feed his family. This practical constraint was with him for his entire career. What a life Dostoevsky led, my God. An arrest in his 20s, a reprieve moments from execution by a firing squad, nine years in Siberia, a debilitating gambling addiction, a frantic scramble to right himself away from the brink of ruin, and a genius at looking deep, deep, deep into the human mind. As much as I would love to have been the author of masterpieces like Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov, I am also very deeply grateful not to have experienced anywhere near Dostoevsky's level of hardship and desperation. As Kevin points out, though, those factors are a considerable part of the reason that he wrote some of the greatest novels of all time. Yeah, and so interesting to think about what goes into the making of a great artist. You know, there's a lot of romance around the idea that art requires suffering. And certainly, as you say, Dostoevsky's greatest art came from enormous suffering. But then you've got Tolstoy, who led an immensely comfortable life and also produced great art. It makes me wonder whether Dostoevsky's temperament, you know, his sensitivity and introspection, would have led him to make great art no matter what his circumstances. And I suspect need factors in here, too. Dostoevsky produced his best work when he was desperate for money. And there are all kinds of reasons, both endogenous and exogenous reasons, that people feel compelled to do something. That feeling that you have no other choice, maybe that's the essential factor. I agree with you. It's all very complicated. Regardless, I think it's worth noting that a full 200 years have passed since Dostoevsky was born and close to that for Tolstoy too. And here we are talking about them with great interest on book dreams. It makes me wonder who people will be talking about in you know 2,222 and in what kind of forum. And with that food for thought, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Kevin at www.kevinbirmingham.net. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.